On page 597, and it's Psalm 88. The introduction says it's a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah, for the director of music, according to something. A masculine of He-Man the Ezraite, so at least we know the name of the person who wrote it. Psalm 88. Lord, you are the God who saves me. Day and night I cry out to you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. I'm overwhelmed with troubles, and my life draws near to death. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm like one without strength. I'm set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. You've put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily on me. You've overwhelmed me with all your waves. You've taken from me my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. I'm confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, Lord, every day. I spread out my hands to you. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do their spirits rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness in destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness, or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? But I cry to you for help, Lord. In the morning, my, cre- my prayer comes before you. Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? From my youth I have suffered and being close to death, I've borne your terrors and am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long they surround me like a flood. They've completely engulfed me. You've taken from me friend and neighbour. Darkness is my closest friend. Great. Sounds grim, doesn't it? (laughs) I don't think there's any doubt that exceptions sometimes help clarify rules. So, for example... If you believe that all swans are white, you will automatically assume that the next swan you come across will undoubtedly be white. So you can imagine the surprise of the Dutch navigator Willem de Vlaming when he discovered the existence of black swans in Western Australia in 1697. From that moment on, the exception to the rule changed the rules. It could no longer be said that all swans are white. And in fact, Western Australia's first stamp uh, is a penny black, which features a black swan to commemorate the uniqueness of this bird. And in fact, it was actually designed by the same people who designed the British penny black. 
I think everyone, everyone carries around in their heads a blueprint that we use to make sense of life, define its boundaries and judge things by. So the white swan advocate who stumbles across a black swan has to readjust this blueprint to take in on board new information. Now as Christians I think we, have a, we use a Christian blueprint all the time. My youngest son has often asked me, um, you know, can you be a true Christian if you don't go to church? Some of my daughter's relatives who live in, in Belfast and are members of the um, Irish Brethren movement believe that you can't be a true Christian if you drink regularly. Because the connotation associated with many pubs in Ireland is that that's just places you go to get absolutely hammered. And you know, what Christian would want to do that? Now, the, the Christian questions that challenge or confirm the blueprint in our mind are endless, aren't they? I mean, you can think of dozens of them. You know, can Christians smoke? Can you be a Catholic and a Christian? <laughs> and so on. Thousands of them. Now, I think as evangelicals, we strive to give wise biblical answers to these sorts of questions. But I think we're fooling ourselves if we believe our views are only shaped by scripture and that we are completely unbiased <coughs> in all our answers. Now hopefully our blueprint has been heavily influenced by scripture but it's likely that it could have also been influenced by our parents' views and our upbringing, the churches we've attended and their Christian traditions, the views of mentors and friends that we, we respect, um, the good and bad experiences of life that we've encountered, and perhaps even at times the world's moral compass and its wisdom. So what has all this got to do with Psalm 88? Well, interestingly, the idea that an exception helps clarify the rules led me to choose Psalm 88 as the passage that we're going to look at today. And I first got interested in Psalm 88 many years ago when I realised, and this is pure coincidence, this is not of God, well maybe it is, uh, I realised many years ago that the Psalms that are multiples of 11 are good examples of Psalms where people are in great trouble and anguish, often because they face some sort of intense rejection. Now, not all the psalms that are multiple of 11 follow this pattern. But 22, 44, 55, 77 and 88 do actually follow that pattern. It's great, isn't it? And of course, because they follow that sort of pattern, they're easy to remember and look up. Um, so you know that it's very common in the psalms for writers to express a huge range of emotions, from joyful praise to lament. And you'll probably also know that it's very common in the Psalms to end on a note of hope or trust or thanksgiving. But Psalm 88 is absolutely nothing like that. Psalm 88 appears to be an unrelenting expression of sadness and misery without a note of joy, praise, resolution or thanks. And the bleakness of the psalm's content is reinforced even more strongly by the last verse, verse 18, 
And in the original Hebrew, that says something like, my constant companion darkness, where the last word of the psalm is darkness, which seems to summarise the, the tenor of the whole psalm. Now, unfortunately, because of this, it's easy to dismiss this psalm as totally unhelpful. And right now you're probably thinking, why on earth is Psalm 88 in the Bible and why are we bothering to look at it? But I know it's hot and I know it's hard and we're going to be a bit longer than normal. But please stick with it because I think there's more in this psalm than a casual glance leads you to believe. And also bear in mind what I said at the beginning of the talk. that It's often the exception that proves the rule. And I think Psalm 88's unique focus on apparent despair and its lack of any, any resolution or comfort is so far removed from what we hope our own Christian experience will be that we need to ask the question, will this exception to the rule help us modify the Christian blueprint that's in our heads and bring that more in line with God's truth? Well, let's see if it does. Um, <clears throat> the first thing you notice about this psalm is that it pays tribute to the sons of Korah and to this guy, I presume he's called He-Man he sounds a bit like an Avenger doesn't he He-Man the Ezraite um, let, I'm just looking at these next two slides just to give a breakdown of the psalms so there are 50 or Orphan, they're called orphan psalms. There's no hint in the psalm itself of who wrote it. There are 50 of those. David wrote the, wrote the bulk of them, 75. And maybe he wrote some of the orphan psalms as well. Solomon wrote two. Moses wrote one. And then you get these guys called the sons of Korah. Now, if you know anything about the Old Testament, you might know that son doesn't actually mean next generation, first generation biological son. It might mean grandson, great-grandson, or someone even further down the line. So the sons of Korah, that might be better deemed the descendants of Korah, wrote 11 psalms. But the sons also wrote in their own right. Asaph, who's one of the sons, wrote 12. Ethan, 1, and He-Man, the guy we're going to look at today, wrote Psalm 88, which he co co-authored with the other sons of Korah. Now I want to make a couple of comments on the sons of Korah and He-Man and I hope you'll see why in a minute. Um, there are three Korahs mentioned in the Old Testament but the Korah whose descendants appear in the Psalms uh, was actually a descendant of Levi and, and therefore probably a priest. Um, but it seems he was also the infamous Korah of number 16 who led a large rebellion of 250 men against Moses while the children of Israel were wandering around for 30 years in the desert. God judged him and those men for that rebellion, opened up a massive sinkhole in the desert underneath and they all fell into it, swallowed them up and that was the end of Korah and that rebellion. Um, but here's the interesting part of the story. That in spite of that tragedy and the, and the effect that that tragedy must have had on, on, the, on the descendants of Korah, 
Korah's actual biological sons, the first generation, who didn't appear to be involved in any way in their father's rebellion, formed a tribe which became known as the Korahites. Um, <clears throat> now, its descendants... It was those people that went on to serve King David as soldiers and doorkeepers in the house of God. And along the way, the Korahite line produced people like Samuel and these guys, the sons of Korah, Heman, Ethan and Asaph, who became David's chief musicians and choral directors. And Heman was a, a, a grandson of Samuel, known for his great wisdom. What a surprise, given who his dad was. And he seems to have provided the mascal for this psalm, whatever the mascal is, it might be the music, we don't really know. Um, but it's the only one attributed to Heman, and that again adds to the uniqueness of this psalm. But Ethan, as well as writing a psalm, served as a prophet. Asaph, as well as writing ten psalms, also served as a prophet. And as we've said, these sons of Korah were co-writers in Psalm 88. So why am I telling you that? Well, I'm telling you that because it's worth bearing this in mind because it shows that the writers of Psalm 88 were not a bunch of quirky oddballs with depressive personalities and a weird theology, but men of wisdom and renown with historical, prophetic and priestly heritage. So that's where we're coming from when we read this psalm. Okay. Enough of, enough of the introduction. Um, now I'm going to refer to the person in this psalm as a hymn because of verse 4b. I, if, if you're not, let me just say this, sorry I'm not trying to teach my grandmother to suck eggs. But if you're not aware of the A and B sim symbolism, if we say 4a we mean the beginning of verse 4. If we say 4b we mean the end of verse 4, if, if, you're not, if you didn't know that. Um, I don't think there's any doubts from the opening verse um, that the man in this psalm is a true believer. He calls God Lord and declares him as the God who saves and then he makes that salvation personal by saying the God who saves me. He then adds, day and night I cry out before you. Who else but a true believer would say and do such things? In fact, he, he, he cries out to God three times in this psalm. Now, each cry has slight variations, and we've already seen in verses 1 and 2, he attributes salvation to the Lord, and he cries out day and night. In verse 9, he says he calls to the Lord every day and spreads out his hands in prayer, as we sometimes do, don't we? We want to emphasise complete oneness with God, openness and a desire to have a, an intimate connection with God. We may well pray like that. And then in verse 13, he says that he cries out to God for help during his morning prayer, which suggests it might well be his habit to have a morning quiet time. So although each cry has its differences and therefore the cry may not be a true chorus to the song as such, I believe these three cries split the psalm into three distinct sections 
where each section deals with a specific issue that he wants to bring before God. And I think we're going to find that as we look at these three sections, we're going to be able to identify with them. Okay, the first section, I've actually got it wrong on the slide. Um, <coughs> it should be verses 3 to 9a. <coughs> but I've called this section the angry face. Now, in these verses, he appears to be describing how he sees life now, how it's affecting him emotionally in this present moment. <coughs> and I've called it the... Ang <coughs> Sorry. I've called this... <coughs> Great. I've called this the angry phase because he rants on about the harsh realities of life as he's, as, 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 as he's facing it right now. And he starts, if you look, notice he starts by describing this life with three I ams. I often think of the seven I ams of Jesus as great counters to these, but that's another talk entirely. So three I ams. So if we read it in verse three to five. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like a man without strength. I am set apart with the dead like the slain who lie in the grave whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. Now paraphrasing this, I think what he's saying is something like this. My life is nothing but trouble, one trouble after another. I can hardly find strength to go on. If I laid on the floor, you would mistake me for a corpse because all the life has gone from me. And that corpse lying over there in that grave, that one over there, now totally forgotten by you, that's me. Ever felt like that in your Christian life? Overwhelmed by the difficulties of life, almost to the point of death, no energy to live, Feeling abandoned and forgotten by God. Praying doesn't seem to bring any help or relief. And his conclusion seems to be 5B. I'm cut off from your care. Now these verses are then followed by three you's and one your. And it seems as though his anger now points a finger at God's apparent contribution to his wretched state. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily upon me. You have overwhelmed me with your waves. You have taken from me my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. It's been my experience, I don't know if it's yours, that it's all too easy in our darkest times to turn the I am's into the you's. You have brought all this trouble on me because you're angry with me. You've taken away my closest friends. The implication being, you know, you brought this pain on me and now you won't help me. And what's worse is those friends who might have helped me, even those friends you've taken away from me. Ever, ever said those sorts of things to God? Job did. Although he did stop short, I think, of accusing God of wrongdoing. 
Now, if you're sitting here and you think, well, I, I, you know, I'd never say that to God. That's, that's blasphemy. Flip. Then I think you're probably young and you probably haven't suffered yet. 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 When you get to my age, you don't say things like that, believe me. I mean, you say things like that, but you don't believe that you wouldn't say things like that if you get my drift. So please listen to this psalm because it's got wisdom to say and uh, you, one day you might need it. Um, so in 8b we get a full am as a bit of a conclusion to these verses. I am confined and cannot escape. Or in other words, you've locked me in a cage and thrown away the key. And I think this has a similar ring to 5b. Just another example of how he feels cut off from God's care. The second section is what I call the reasoning phase. So this this small section, you notice it's now changed from four I am's and four you and yours to four questions. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do those who are dead rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness in destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness, or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? Can you see what he's doing here? He's making an argument from something like the Westminster Confession. He takes everything God values in his relationship with man and turns it into questions. How can I love you, enjoy you, praise you, be a witness for you, if I'm living like a dead man in oblivion? Surely, God, can't you see that there's some faulty logic at work here? Ever tried to point out God's faulty logic in the way that he's dealing with you? I could be a much better Christian and in a much better place if only you would do this or that for me. One of the arguments, perhaps to my shame, that I've used on occasions with God when I'm overwhelmed goes something like this, and I probably say it with this sort of, Lord, I'm your son. I wouldn't do to my son what you're doing to me right now because I love my son too much. Why are you doing this to me, Lord, when you're a much better father than I could ever be? Ever said anything like that? The third, third section is the, what I've called the depression phase. And I think we can learn something about our heart and God's heart in this phase. Now in this last section, notice that in verse 13, his final cry is calling on God for help. But let me just quickly recap the two previous sections, just with a sentence before we see where this final section's headed. So in the first section he ponders his plight and concludes that he must be completely cut off from God's care and just like a caged animal, he can't escape his fate. The second section was an appeal, appeal to God to remove the problems in his life because they were hindering him from obeying God's own creation ordinances for mankind to wonder, worship and witness under God's rule. And this, in this last section, if we take verses 13 and 14 together, it seems that the help he is crying out for here is no longer 
relief from his sufferings, but an understanding of why God is rejecting him, him and hiding his face from him. Now this leap from just wanting to experience God's action in our lives to knowing God's mind and heart is both profound and necessary for our Christian growth. Psalm 103 verse 7 says, He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. Moses knew God's heart. Israel only saw God's deeds. All of Israel, except two, died in the desert wanderings. Do you know this little ditty? Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, were the only two to enter the land of milk and honey. Do you know that one? But do you know what was even worse? Even Moses could not enter the land. Even Moses. And do you remember why? They, the Israelites had no water and they kept moaning, moaning, moaning. Moses went to the rock of Meribah and struck it twice with his staff to get water out this rock. And God had just told him to speak to the rock, not strike it. So that one action or that one thing of putting action above trust excluded him from the promised land because it it misrepresented what was so precious to God (coughs) so it's a massive thing when you ask to know God's heart rather than simply asking God to act and if you remember nothing else from today's talk please remember this It's far more beneficial to know and love your parents than simply get their presence. And the same applies to God. And then he gathers a load of evidence to try and support his case that God's hiding his face and rejecting him. I wonder if we were the ones that were suffering, what what would be the evidence that we would gather to support our view? Well, let's, let's let's review his evidence. Now notice that there's nothing in these verses that defines the type of suffering he's experiencing. And maybe that's deliberate because we all obviously suffer in completely different ways. And if we're going to learn something from this psalm, the type of suffering we experience is nowhere near as important as the way we deal with that suffering. But whatever it is he's experiencing it's clearly having a profound effect on him. I think we can infer from verse 15 that his suffering is long-standing and somehow life-threatening. It's not clear if, if this primary threat, threat is to his mental health, his physical well-being, or his emotional stability, or perhaps all of them together. But whatever it is to him, it's all engulfing and consuming. And it's, as we've said before, it's resulted in the loss of his close friends. And I was thinking about that. Perhaps because the suffering's been so long-standing, the sort of faithful help from friends that continues to give and give and give under all circumstances, especially when there appears to be no visible improvement in the suffering, can be difficult to find. 
Now, I can't give you the details of the, 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 these people I'm about to talk about because I haven't asked them if I can share this, so I'll share it anonymously. We know a young couple in commission who recently experienced a wrench, heart-wrenching tragedy. But one of their close friends texted them some words of encouragement every day for six months. Every day for six months. As a sign of, of her love for them both. Now you don't find many people who would do that. Most people bail out after a couple of weeks, don't they? So as a result of all this, <clears throat> sorry, I've had a, a bit of a cold for some weeks. Uh, <clears throat> as a result of all this, the only thing he feels he's left with is darkness. Darkness is his closest friend. And this darkness, this emotional response to his pain and suffering, seems to be the crux of the evidence that he presents to God to prove God has deserted him. Apparently Winston Churchill suffered many bouts of depression throughout his life. He called it his black dog. And I don't think there's any doubt that the psalmist's comments about his darkness means the black dog has come upon him and he has entered a period of chronic depression. Now, Dr. Kubler-Ross was a Swiss-American psychiatrist in the 1960s who did extensive research on the patterns of behaviour of patients who were dying of terminal Ill illnesses. And she wrote a book in 1969 called On Death and Dying. And in her book, she identifies five stages of grief often associated with dying people. And the stages are denial, they, don't, they just don't accept, they've got whatever it is they've got. Anger, bargaining, depression, and then the last one, acceptance. Now so far in this psalm we've seen something of how anger, bargaining and depression are also phases we can pass through during chronic pain and suffering, let alone when we're facing death. Interestingly, Kubler-Ross in her book stated that once the patients embraced their fate, they, they entered what, the, what she called an acceptance phase, and they became free from anxiety and peaceful. And from that point on, nothing seemed to be able to hurt, worry, or disturb them. And I think as Christians aiming for the, this acceptance phase during bouts of chronic suffering is both biblical and something that is achievable. Okay, so what does Psalm 88 have to say to Christians who might be experiencing debilitating darkness? What could it say that might help them achieve something like this acceptance phase that Kubler-Ross talks about? I think the first thing this psalm impresses on us is that we might need to review the blueprint that we carry around in our heads that defines what we think the Christian life is all about. Now I became a Christian at university about 52 years ago and at that time 
I don't think, you know, I never thought that that sort of darkness could ever be a part of my Christian life. I assumed God's goodness wouldn't allow it. You know, his love would protect me from such things. Surely significant suffering only happens to non-Christian people. It couldn't possibly happen to me. Because if, if it did, it would have such a negative effect on me. And clearly God doesn't want that, does he? Now, there are about a dozen people in our Hall of Residence Fellowship group. And I love those people dearly. And I loved our studies and our meeting together. And as far as I could tell at that time, they all seemed to be pretty switched on Christians. Now, it's true I have lost touch with a, a, a few of them. But 50 years on, this is what I now know. Two of the group, who happened to be my best friends in that group, died of cancer in their early 50s, leaving grieving wives and kids behind. I was very pleased to, to learn that both widows did remarry. Um, at least three of that group have fallen away from the faith. One, because he could not reconcile a God of love with the daily sufferings he saw his mother endured as she tried to cope with chronic back pain. She committed suicide later in life because of this pain. One married his non-Christian childhood sweetheart and they both gave up all sorts of things to be together. Um, but for some reason, I don't know what happened, he had an affair, they got divorced and somewhere along the way he lost his faith. The third one, who I still meet occasionally, I went to Wimbledon with him a few years ago, I think just fell back in love with the world and gave up his faith. Another member from that group is a C of E bishop and is now declaring himself as gay. On a happier note, three of the group are leaders in their local churches, as were my two friends who died of cancer, one of whom was an Anglican minister. So I think Psalm 88's focus on the reality of pain and suffering simply confirms what we already know. We live in a broken world marred by sin. Suffering and pain are normal, not an abnormal part of this life. And the psalmist wants to strongly remind us that as Christians we're not immune from this suffering. Brokenness touches everyone. And all of us will suffer at some time in our lives. And if you're sitting here thinking you won't, please revise the blueprint in your head. You will. At some time you will. And I think the psalmist wants to forewarn us that if you enter that chronic suffering phase, be prepared for your emotions to constantly bombard you by telling you you've been abandoned by God. We need to fight and reject these thoughts. We need to take the lack of resolution or comfort in Psalm 88 as a positive reminder that our faith in God should not be based on the good things that happen to us in this life. 
Our faith must never be grounded in what gains we make in life, but grounded in God's love, mercy and faithfulness, even and most importantly, during times of suffering and hardship. Let's encourage one another to remember that this life is only a shadow of reality. True enduring gain is only ever found in the life to come. Remember Philippians 1.23, where Paul says, For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. And I think this is where the blueprint in our heads needs the most adjustment. Because often we don't believe that. It's a nice thing, but we don't actually live by it, but we need to. Let me just read you, I'm only going to, we haven't got time, I'm just going to read a few snippets from Psalm 22. Remember, multiples of 11. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. All those who see me mock me, they hurl insults at me. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me, a band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing, etc. Now, undoubtedly David was suffering when he wrote that psalm in some way. But the psalm is clearly prophetic. All the prophecies in this psalm are fulfilled at Christ's crucifixion. Even though it was written a thousand years before Jesus came on the scene. And I suppose the best one, the, 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 one, that's, the one that's most well known, is Matthew 27:46, which is a direct quote from verse 1 of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Doesn't that have a Psalm 88 feel about it as well? The point is, even Christ had to experience intense pain and suffering, abandonment and death, so that the problem of sin could be effectively dealt with. Even for him, there was no easy way to satisfy God's justice and love. So, please listen to this next bit. Rather than suffering being an indicator of God's rejection, the opposite is often true. God entrusts suffering to faithful people. Christ is a good example. And even though we cannot fully plumb the depths of what all this means, we can be certain that in some mysterious way, not only the sufferings of Christ, but all our sufferings, work together to, to achieve his good purposes. I think what makes this whole thing more palatable is to remember that on the day Jesus was crucified, not only did he endure, endure the physical pain and the suffering and the torture and the death and all the rest of it, but he and the onlookers experienced three hours of eclipse-like darkness. 
to remind us of the total blackness he faced on that cross. Rejection from God, his Father, rejection from the world, rejection from his disciples, his closest friends, so that he more than anyone, more than the person in Psalm 88 could say, You have taken my companions and loved ones from me. Darkness is my closest friend. He endured that darkness. Not to save us from ever experiencing periods of darkness in this world. But to allow us to experience nothing but light in the world to come. Now I'm nearly at the end. (laughs) You'll be pleased to know. Um, I'm going to finish with a short story and then a couple of conclusions around 2001 author and theologian Russell Moore and his wife Maria started the process of adopting two one year old boys from the former Soviet Union orphanage On the first of their two visits, they stifled their urge to vomit as they encountered the stench and the squalor inside the building. But the thing that really disturbed them the most was the pervading silence. In spite of the place being filled with very young children, infants and babies, no one was crying. They later found out that there was no crying because infants eventually learn to stop crying if no one ever responds to their calls for food, comfort or love. And no one ever responded to these children. So they stopped crying and never cried again. On the last day of their initial visit, the Moors dreaded telling the boys that they had to return to the US until all the legal stuff had been sorted out. So they kissed and hugged little Maxime and Sergei, said their goodbyes and walked out into the quiet hallway. Within moments, little Maxime fell back in his crib and let out a guttural scream. It seemed he knew maybe for the first time that someone was now willing to listen to his cry. Okay, so here's the final conclusions. What's the most important thing this psalm teaches us? Well, I think, you know, maybe the things we've set up up to this point have some importance. But none of them are as important as this. Hope. The psalmist had hope. Now you're probably saying to yourself right now, are you kidding me? How on earth do you come to that conclusion? Well, here's how. Three times in this psalm, the psalmist cries out to God. But if you look at those three times, 1b, 9b and 13b, they all tell us that he actually cried out to God every day. 
You see, if he'd completely lost all hope, he would have been like those children in the orphanage, completely silent. But he wasn't. He was like little Maxine, who cried out for all he was worth. And so did this psalmist every day. And the reason that he did that was because God's spirit within him was prompting him to say, cry to God, my hope in God is far bigger than the darkness in your life, so cry to God. Um, And that's what I think we need to learn in this psalm, hope. Now in 1 Corinthians, you'll know this famous verse, in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, Paul says these three remain, faith, hope, love, and the greatest of these is love. The greatest of these is undoubtedly love, because God is love, both here, on earth, and in heaven, forever. Wherever God is, love will permeate heaven forever. But we won't need faith or hope in heaven. Because the truth of God and heaven will become immediately obvious to us as soon as we enter it. But be totally assured you can only survive on this side of heaven in the Christian life if you have hope. Yeah. So, last comments. Psalm 88 reminds us that that we're not abnormal, ungodly or apostate if we feel and react to chronic pain and suffering in the ways that the psalmist did. The key is to embrace the suffering and while we're in it, strive to do these three things. Build faith by trusting God to use our pain and anguish for his good purposes and our sanctification, even though we can't see how he's going to do that. Build love by talking to God, honestly sharing everything that comes into your life. The good, the bad and the ugly. And getting to know his special heart of love for us in difficult times and lastly and most importantly build hope by remembering how God uses darkness to bring light all Christian crucifixions eventually turn into resurrections if not now certainly in the life to come I hope you have enjoyed Psalm 88 (laughs) Adam Adam